Chapter Nine, Part One of Beyond Good and Evil by Friedrich Nietzsche. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ninth Chapter. What is noble? Two hundred and fifty-seven. Every elevation of the type man has hitherto been the work of an aristocratic society, and so will it always be a society believing in a long scale of gradations of rank and differences of worth among human beings, and requiring slavery in some form or other. Without the pathos of distance, such as grows out of the incarnated difference of classes, out of the constant outlooking and downlooking of the ruling caste on subordinates and instruments, and out of their equally constant practice of obeying and commanding, of keeping down and keeping at a distance, that other, more mysterious pathos could never have arisen, the longing for an ever-new widening of distance within the soul itself, the formation of ever higher, rarer, further, more extended, more comprehensive states, in short, just the elevation of the type man, the continued self-surmounting of man, to use a moral formula in a supermoral sense. To be sure, one must not resign oneself to any humanitarian illusions about the history of the origin of an aristocratic society, that is to say, of the preliminary condition for the elevation of the type man. The truth is hard. Let us acknowledge unprejudicedly how every higher civilization hitherto has originated. Men, with a still natural nature, barbarians in every terrible sense of the word, men of prey, still in possession of unbroken strength of will and desire for power, threw themselves upon weaker, more moral, more peaceful races, perhaps trading or cattle-rearing communities, or upon old mellow civilizations in which the final vital force was flickering out in brilliant fireworks of wit and depravity. At the commencement, the noble caste was always the barbarian caste. Their superiority did not consist first of all in their physical, but in their psychical power. They were more complete men, which at every point also implies the same as more complete beasts. 258. Corruption as the indication that anarchy threatens to break out among the instincts, and that the foundation of the emotions, called life, is convulsed, is something radically different according to the organization in which it manifests itself. When, for instance, an aristocracy like that of France at the beginning of the Revolution flung away its privileges with sublime disgust and sacrificed itself to an excess of its moral sentiments, it was corruption. It was really only the closing act of the corruption which had existed for centuries, by virtue of which that aristocracy had abdicated, step by step, its lordly prerogatives and lowered itself to a function of royalty, in the end even to its decoration and parade dress. The essential thing, however, in a good and healthy aristocracy, is that it should not regard itself as a function either of the kingship or the commonwealth, but as the significance and highest justification thereof. 
that it should therefore accept with a good conscience the sacrifice of a legion of individuals who for its sake must be suppressed and reduced to imperfect men to slaves and instruments its fundamental belief must be precisely that society is not allowed to exist for its own sake but only as a foundation and scaffolding by means of which a select class of beings may be able to elevate themselves to their higher duties and in general to a higher existence like those sun-seeking climbing plants in java they are called sipo matador which encircle an oak so long and so often with their arms until at last high above it but supported by it they can unfold their tops in the open light and exhibit their happiness 259 to refrain mutually from injury from violence from exploitation and put one's will on a par with that of others this may result in a certain rough sense in good conduct among individuals when the necessary conditions are given, namely, the actual similarity of the individuals in amount of force and degree of worth, and their co-relation within one organization. As soon, however, as one wished to take this principle more generally, and if possible even as the fundamental principle of society, it would immediately disclose what it really is, namely a will to the denial of life, a principle of dissolution and decay. Here one must think profoundly to the very basis and resist all sentimental weakness. Life itself is essentially appropriation, injury, conquest of the strange and weak, suppression, severity, obtrusion of its own forms, incorporation, and, at the least, putting it mildest, exploitation. But why should one for ever use precisely these words, on which for ages a disparaging purpose has been stamped? Even the organization within which, as was previously supposed, the individuals treat each other as equal—it takes place in every healthy aristocracy—must itself if it be a living and not a dying organization, do all that towards other bodies, which the individuals within it refrain from doing to each other. It will have to be the incarnated will to power. It will endeavor to grow, to gain ground, attract to itself, and acquire ascendancy, not owing to any morality or immorality, but because it lives and because life is precisely will to power. On no point, however, is the ordinary consciousness of Europeans more unwilling to be corrected than on this matter. People now rave everywhere, even under the guise of science, about coming conditions of society in which the exploiting character is to be absent. That sounds to my ears as if they promised to invent a mode of life which should refrain from all organic functions. Exploitation does not belong to a depraved or imperfect and primitive society. It belongs to the nature of the living being as a primary organic function. It is a consequence of the intrinsic will to power, which is precisely the will to life. 
granting that as a theory this is a novelty as a reality it is the fundamental fact of all history let us be so far honest towards ourselves 260 in a tour through the many finer and coarser moralities which have hitherto prevailed or still prevail on the earth i found certain traits recurring regularly together and connected with one another until finally two primary types revealed themselves to me and a radical distinction was brought to light there is master morality and slave morality i would at once add however that in all higher and mixed civilizations there are also attempts at the reconciliation of the two moralities but one finds still oftener the confusion and mutual misunderstanding of them indeed sometimes their close juxtaposition even in the same man within one's soul the distinctions of moral values have either originated in a ruling caste pleasantly conscious of being different from the ruled or among the ruled class the slaves and dependents of all sorts in the first case when it is the rulers who determine the conception good it is the exalted proud disposition which is regarded as the distinguishing feature and that which determines the order of rank the noble type of man separates from himself the beings in whom the opposite of this exalted proud disposition displays itself he despises them let it at once be noted that in this first kind of morality the antithesis good and bad means practically the same as noble and despicable the antithesis good and evil is of a different origin the cowardly the timid the insignificant and those thinking merely of narrow utility are despised moreover also the distrustful with their constrained glances the self-abasing the dog-like kind of men who let themselves be abused the mendicant flatterers and above all the liars it is a fundamental belief of all aristocrats that the common people are untruthful we truthful ones the nobility in ancient greece called themselves it is obvious that everywhere the designations of moral value were at first applied to men and were only derivatively and at a later period applied to actions it is a gross mistake therefore when historians of morals start with questions like why have sympathetic actions been praised the noble type of man regards himself as a determiner of values he does not require to be approved of he passes the judgment what is injurious to me is injurious in itself he knows that it is he himself only who confers honour on things he is a creator of values he honours whatever he recognises in himself such morality is self-glorification in the foreground there is the feeling of plenitude of power which seeks to overflow the happiness of high tension the consciousness of a wealth which would fain give and bestow the noble man also helps the unfortunate but not or scarcely out of pity but rather from an impulse generated by the superabundance of power 
the noble man honours in himself the powerful one, him also who has power over himself, who knows how to speak and how to keep silence, who takes pleasure in subjecting himself to severity and hardness, and has reverence for all that is severe and hard. Wotan placed a hard heart in my breast, says an old Scandinavian saga. It is thus rightly expressed from the soul of a proud Viking. Such a type of man is even proud of not being made for sympathy. The hero of the saga therefore adds warningly, He who has not a hard heart when young will never have one. The noble and brave who think thus are the furthest removed from the morality which sees precisely in sympathy, or in acting for the good of others, or in desinteressimo, the characteristic of the moral, faith in oneself, pride in oneself, a radical enmity and irony towards selflessness, belong as definitely to noble morality as do a careless scorn and precaution in presence of sympathy and the warm heart. It is the powerful who know how to honour, it is their art, their domain for invention. The profoundest reverence for age, and for tradition, all law rests on this double reverence, the belief and prejudice in favour of ancestors, and unfavourable to newcomers, is typical in the morality of the powerful. And if, reversely, men of modern ideas believe almost instinctively in progress and the future, and are more and more lacking in respect for old age, the ignoble origin of these ideas has complacently betrayed itself thereby. A morality of the ruling class, however, is more especially foreign and irritating to present-day taste, in the sternness of its principle, that one has duties only to one's equals, that one may act towards beings of a lower rank, towards all that is foreign, just as seems good to one, or as the heart desires, and in any case beyond good and evil. It is here that sympathy and similar sentiments can have a place. The ability and obligation to exercise prolonged gratitude and prolonged revenge, both only within the circle of equals, artfulness in retaliation, raffinement of the idea in friendship, a certain necessity to have enemies, as outlets for the emotions of envy, quarrelsomeness, arrogance, in fact, in order to be a good friend. All these are typical characteristics of the noble morality, which, as has been pointed out, is not the morality of modern ideas, and is therefore at present difficult to realise, and also to unearth and disclose. It is otherwise with the second type of morality, slave morality. Supposing that the abused, the oppressed, the suffering, the unemancipated, the weary, and those uncertain of themselves, should moralise, what will be the common element in their moral estimates? Probably a pessimistic suspicion with regard to the entire situation of man will find expression. Perhaps a condemnation of man, together with his situation. The slave has an unfavourable eye for the virtues of the powerful. He has a scepticism and distrust, a refinement of distrust of everything good that there is honoured. 
he would fain persuade himself that the very happiness there is not genuine. On the other hand, those qualities which serve to alleviate the existence of sufferers are brought into prominence and flooded with light. It is here that sympathy, the kind helping hand, the warm heart, patience, diligence, humility and friendliness attain to honour. For here these are the most useful qualities, and almost the only means of supporting the burden of existence. Slave morality is essentially the morality of utility. Here is the seat of the origin of the famous antithesis, good and evil. Power and dangerousness are assumed to reside in the evil, a certain dreadfulness, subtlety and strength, which do not admit of being despised. According to slave morality, therefore, the evil man arouses fear. According to master morality, it is precisely the good man who arouses fear, and seeks to arouse it, while the bad man is regarded as the despicable being. The contrast attains its maximum when, in accordance with the logical consequences of slave morality, a shade of depreciation—it might be slight and well-intentioned—at last attaches itself even to the good man of this morality, because, according to the servile mode of thought, the good man must in any case be the safe man. He is good-natured, easily deceived, perhaps a little stupid, un bonhomme. Everywhere that slave morality gains the ascendancy, language shows a tendency to approximate the significations of the words good and stupid. A last fundamental difference, the desire for freedom, the instinct for happiness and the refinements of the feeling of liberty belong as necessarily to slave morals and morality, as artifice and enthusiasm in reverence and devotion are the regular symptoms of an aristocratic mode of thinking and estimating. Hence we can understand, without further detail, why love as a passion—it is our European speciality—must absolutely be of noble origin. As is well known, its invention is due to the Provençal poet-cavaliers, those brilliant, ingenious men of the Guy Sabert, to whom Europe owes so much, and almost owes itself. 261. Vanity is one of the things which are perhaps most difficult for a noble man to understand. He will be tempted to deny it where another kind of man thinks he sees it self-evidently. The problem for him is to represent to his mind beings who seek to arouse a good opinion of themselves which they themselves do not possess, and consequently also do not deserve, and who yet believe in this good opinion afterwards. This seems to him on the one hand such bad taste and so self-disrespectful, and on the other hand so grotesquely unreasonable that he would like to consider vanity an exception, and is doubtful about it in most cases when it is spoken of. He will say, for instance, I may be mistaken about my value, and on the other hand may nevertheless demand that my value should be acknowledged by others precisely as I rate it. That, however, is not vanity, but self-conceit, or in most cases that which is called humility and also modesty or he will even say, 
for many reasons i can delight in the good opinion of others perhaps because i love and honour them and rejoice in all their joys perhaps also because their good opinion endorses and strengthens my belief in my own good opinion perhaps because the good opinion of others even in cases where i do not share it is useful to me or gives promise of usefulness all this however is not vanity the man of noble character must first bring it home forcibly to his mind especially with the aid of history that from time immemorial in all social strata in any way dependent the ordinary man was only that which he passed for not being at all accustomed to fix values he did not assign even to himself any other value than that which his master assigned to him it is the peculiar right of masters to create values it may be looked upon as the result of an extraordinary atavism that the ordinary man even at present is still always waiting for an opinion about himself and then instinctively submitting himself to it yet by no means only to a good opinion but also to a bad and unjust one think for instance of the greater part of the self-appreciations and self-depreciations which believing women learn from their confessors and which in general the believing christian learns from his church in fact conformably to the slow rise of the democratic social order and its cause the blending of the blood of masters and slaves the originally noble and rare impulse of the masters to assign a value to themselves and to think well of themselves will now be more and more encouraged and extended but it has at all times an older ampler and more radically ingrained propensity opposed to it and in the phenomenon of vanity this older propensity overmasters the younger the vain person rejoices over every good opinion which he hears about himself quite apart from the point of view of its usefulness and equally regardless of its truth or falsehood just as he suffers from every bad opinion for he subjects himself to both he feels himself subjected to both by that oldest instinct of subjection which breaks forth in him it is the slave in the vain man's blood the remains of the slave's craftiness and how much of the slave is still left in woman for instance which seeks to seduce to good opinions of itself it is the slave too who immediately afterwards falls prostrate himself before these opinions as though he had not called them forth and to repeat it again vanity is an atavism two hundred and sixty two a species originates and a type becomes established and strong in the long struggle with essentially constant unfavourable conditions on the other hand it is known by the experience of breeders that species which receive superabundant nourishment and in general a surplus of protection and care immediately tend in the most marked way to develop variations and are fertile in prodigies and monstrosities also in monstrous vices now look at an aristocratic commonwealth say an ancient greek polis or venice as a voluntary or involuntary contrivance for the purpose of rearing human beings there are there men beside one another 
thrown upon their own resources, who want to make their species prevail, chiefly because they must prevail, or else run the terrible danger of being exterminated. The favour, the superabundance, the protection are there lacking under which variations are fostered. The species needs itself as species, as something which, precisely by virtue of its hardness, its uniformity and simplicity of structure, can, in general, prevail and make itself permanent in constant struggle with its neighbours, or with rebellious or rebellion-threatening vassals. The most varied experience teaches it what are the qualities to which it principally owes the fact that it still exists, in spite of all gods and men, and has hitherto been victorious. These qualities it calls virtues, and these virtues alone it develops to maturity. It does so with severity. Indeed, it desires severity. Every aristocratic morality is intolerant in the education of youth, in the control of women, in the marriage customs, in the relations of young and old, in the penal laws, which have an eye only for the degenerating. It counts intolerance itself among the virtues, under the name of justice. A type with few but very marked features, a species of severe, warlike, wisely silent, reserved and reticent men, and, as such, with the most delicate sensibility for the charm and nuances of society, is thus established, unaffected by the vicissitudes of generations. The constant struggle with uniform unfavourable conditions is, as already marked, the cause of a type becoming stable and hard. Finally, however, a happy state of things results, the enormous tension is relaxed, there are perhaps no more enemies among the neighbouring peoples, and the means of life, even of the enjoyment of life, are present in superabundance. With one stroke the bond and constraint of the old discipline severs, it is no longer regarded as necessary, as a condition of existence. If it would continue, it can only do so as a form of luxury, as an archaising taste. Variations, whether they be deviations into the higher, finer and rarer, or deteriorations and monstrosities, appear suddenly on the scene in the greatest exuberance and splendour. The individual dares to be individual and detach himself. At this turning-point of history there manifest themselves, side by side, and often mixed and entangled together, a magnificent, manifold, virgin forest-like upgrowth and upstriving, a kind of tropical tempo in the rivalry of growth, and an extraordinary decay and self-destruction, owing to the savagely opposing and seemingly exploding egoisms which strive with one another for sun and light, and can no longer assign any limit, restraint or forbearance for themselves by means of the hitherto existing morality. It was this morality itself which piled up the strength so enormously, which bent the bow in so threatening a manner. It is now out of date. It is getting out of date. The dangerous and disquieting point has been reached, when the greater, more manifold, more comprehensive life 
is lived beyond the old morality. The individual stands out, and is obliged to have recourse to his own law-giving, his own arts and artifices for self-preservation, self-elevation, and self-deliverance. Nothing but new whys, nothing but new hows, no common formulas any longer, misunderstanding and disregard in league with each other, decay, deterioration, and the loftiest desires frightfully entangled, the genius of the race overflowing from all the cornucopias of good and bad, a portentous simultaneousness of spring and autumn, full of new charms and mysteries peculiar to the fresh, still inexhausted, still unwearied corruption. Danger is again present, the mother of morality, great danger. This time shifted into the individual, into the neighbour and friend, into the street, into their own child, into their own heart, into all the most personal and secret recesses of their desires and volitions. What will the moral philosophers who appear at this time have to preach? They discover, these sharp onlookers and loafers, that the end is quickly approaching, that everything around them decays and produces decay, that nothing will endure until the day after to-morrow, except one species of man, the incurably mediocre. The mediocre alone have a prospect of continuing and propagating themselves. They will be the men of the future, the sole survivors. Be like them, become mediocre, is now the only morality which still has a significance, which still obtains a hearing. But it is difficult to preach this morality of mediocrity. It can never avow what it is and what it desires. It has to talk of moderation and dignity and duty and brotherly love. It will have difficulty in concealing its irony. 263. There is an instinct for rank, which, more than anything else, is already the sign of a high rank. There is a delight in the nuances of reverence, which leads one to infer noble origin and habits. The refinement, goodness, and loftiness of a soul are put to a perilous test when something passes by that is of the highest rank, but is not yet protected by the awe of authority from obtrusive touches and incivilities, something that goes its way like a living touchstone, undistinguished, undiscovered, and tentative, perhaps voluntarily veiled and disguised. He whose task and practice it is to investigate souls will avail himself of many varieties of this very art to determine the ultimate value of a soul, the unalterable, innate order of rank to which it belongs. He will test it by its instinct for reverence. Difference engendre haine. The vulgarity of many a nature spurts up suddenly, like dirty water, when any holy vessel, any jewel from closed shrines, any book bearing the marks of great destiny, is brought before it. While, on the other hand, there is an involuntary silence, a hesitation of the eye, a cessation of all gestures, by which it is indicated that a soul feels the nearness of what is worthiest of respect. The way in which, on the whole, the reverence for the Bible has hitherto been maintained in Europe, 
is perhaps the best example of discipline and refinement of manners which Europe owes to Christianity. Books of such profoundness and supreme significance require for their protection an external tyranny of authority, in order to acquire the period of thousands of years which is necessary to exhaust and unriddle them. Much has been achieved when the sentiment has been at last instilled into the masses, the shallow-pates and the boobies of every kind, that they are not allowed to touch everything, that there are holy experiences before which they must take off their shoes and keep away the unclean hand. It is almost their highest advance towards humanity. On the contrary, in the so-called cultured classes, the believers in modern ideas, nothing is perhaps so repulsive as their lack of shame, the easy insolence of eye and hand with which they touch, taste and finger everything. And it is possible that even yet there is more relative nobility of taste, and more tact for reverence among the people, among the lower classes of the people, especially among peasants, than among the newspaper-reading demimonde of intellect, the cultured class. 264. It cannot be effaced from a man's soul what his ancestors have preferably and most constantly done, whether they were perhaps diligent economizers attached to a desk and a cash-box, modest and citizen-like in their desires, modest also in their virtues, or whether they were accustomed to commanding from morning to night, fond of rude pleasures and probably of still ruder duties and responsibilities, or whether, finally, at one time or another, they have sacrificed old privileges of birth and possession in order to live wholly for their faith, for their God, as men of an inexorable and sensitive conscience, which blushes at every compromise. It is quite impossible for a man not to have the qualities and predilections of his parents and ancestors in his constitution, whatever appearances may suggest to the contrary. This is the problem of race. Granted that one knows something of the parents, it is admissible to draw a conclusion about the child. Any kind of offensive incontinence, any kind of sordid envy, or of clumsy self-vaunting, the three things which together have constituted the genuine plebeian type in all times, such must pass over to the child as surely as bad blood, and with the help of the best education and culture one will only succeed in deceiving with regard to such heredity. And what else does education and culture try to do nowadays? In our very democratic, or rather very plebeian age, Education and culture must be essentially the art of deceiving, deceiving with regard to origin, with regard to the inherited plebeianism in body and soul. An educator who nowadays preached truthfulness above everything else, and called out constantly to his pupils, Be true, be natural, show yourselves as you are. Even such a virtuous and sincere ass would learn in a short time to have recourse to the Furca of Horace, Naturam Expellere, with what results? Plebeianism, usque recurret. 265. 
at the risk of displeasing innocent ears, I submit that egoism belongs to the essence of a noble soul. I mean the unalterable belief that, to a being such as we, other beings must naturally be in subjection, and have to sacrifice themselves. The noble soul accepts the fact of his egoism without question, and also without consciousness of harshness, constraint or arbitrariness therein, but rather as something that may have its basis in the primary law of things. If he sought a designation for it, he would say, it is justice itself. He acknowledges, under certain circumstances, which made him hesitate at first, that there are other equally privileged ones. As soon as he has settled this question of rank, he moves among those equals and equally privileged ones with the same assurance, as regards modesty and delicate respect, which he enjoys in intercourse with himself, in accordance with an innate heavenly mechanism which all the stars understand. It is an additional instance of his egoism, this artfulness and self-limitation in intercourse with his equals. Every star is a similar egoist. He honours himself in them, and in the rights which he concedes to them, he has no doubt that the exchange of honours and rights, as the essence of all intercourse, belongs also to the natural condition of things. The noble soul gives as he takes, prompted by the passionate and sensitive instinct of requital, which is at the root of his nature. The notion of favour has, inter pares, neither significance nor good repute. There may be a sublime way of letting gifts, as it were, light upon one from above, and of drinking them thirstily like dewdrops. But for those arts and displays the noble soul has no aptitude. His egoism hinders him here. In general he looks aloft unwillingly. He looks either forward, horizontally and deliberately, or downwards. He knows that he is on a height. 266. One can only truly esteem him who does not look out for himself. Goethe to Rath Schlosser. 267. The Chinese have a proverb which mothers even teach their children. Shao Sin, make thy heart small. This is the essentially fundamental tendency in latter-day civilizations. I have no doubt that an ancient Greek, also, would first of all remark the self-dwarfing in us Europeans of today. In this respect alone we should immediately be distasteful to him. 268. What, after all, is ignobleness? Words are vocal symbols for ideas. Ideas, however, are more or less definite mental symbols for frequently returning and concurring sensations, for groups of sensations. It is not sufficient to use the same words in order to understand one another. We must also employ the same words for the same kind of internal experiences. We must, in the end, have experiences in common. On this account, the people of one nation understand one another better than those belonging to different nations, even when they use the same language. Or rather, 
when people have lived long together under similar conditions, of climate, soil, danger, requirement, toil, there originates therefrom an entity that understands itself, namely a nation. In all souls a like number of frequently recurring experiences have gained the upper hand over those occurring more rarely. About these matters people understand one another rapidly, and always more rapidly. The history of language is the history of a process of abbreviation. On the basis of this quick comprehension, people always unite closer and closer. The greater the danger, the greater is the need of agreeing quickly and readily about what is necessary, not to misunderstand one another in danger. That is what cannot at all be dispensed with in intercourse. Also in all loves and friendships, one has the experience that nothing of the kind continues when the discovery has been made that in using the same words, one of the two parties has feelings, thoughts, intuitions, wishes or fears, different from those of the other. The fear of the eternal misunderstanding, that is the good genius which so often keeps persons of different sexes from too hasty attachments to which sense and heart prompt them, and not some Schopenhauerian genius of the species. Whichever groups of sensations within a soul awaken most readily, begin to speak and give the word of command, these decide as to the general order of rank of its values, and determine ultimately its list of desirable things. A man's estimates of value betray something of the structure of his soul, and wherein it sees its conditions of life, its intrinsic needs. Supposing now that necessity has from all time drawn together only such men as could express similar requirements and similar experiences by similar symbols, it results, on the whole, that the easy communicability of need, which implies ultimately the undergoing only of average and common experiences, must have been the most potent of all the forces which have hitherto operated upon mankind. The more similar, the more ordinary people, have always had, and are still having, the advantage, the more select, more refined, more unique, and difficultly comprehensible, are liable to stand alone, they succumb to accidents in their isolation, and seldom propagate themselves. One must appeal to immense opposing forces, in order to thwart this natural, all too natural, progressus in simile the evolution of man to the similar, the ordinary, the average, the gregarious, to the ignoble. End of chapter 9, part 1